Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridgeline from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Today is Friday, November 4th, 2011. This is episode 778 of the Survival Podcast. And what are we going to do today? It's Friday. We're going to go back to the old schedule and just do a good old-fashioned listener call show. If you want to be on a show like this, it's really easy. All you have to do is pick up your phone Mash some numbers. Those numbers are 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. Let me remind you, when you make a call like that, if you actually want to get on the air, there's a great way to try to ensure that you get on the air. One, if you're using a cell phone, call from a place you know you get good signal. Two, if you are in your car, make sure at least the windows are closed. Three, make sure you're not operating heavy equipment like bulldozers or chainsaws. And four, know what you're going to say before you make the call and get it done in two minutes or less. And odds are, sooner or later, you will end up on the show. Before we get to your calls, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, MERS Radio. That's actually M-U-R-S hyphen radio.com. A little dash between the MERS and the radio. So what is MERS Radio? MERS Radio is a public radio frequency uh, spectrum, which means you can operate it without a license. There's actually five frequencies, five sub-frequencies, but it's not used that much. It only has a range of about one to two miles, so this is something to like, use around your homestead for secondary communications. But with those five sub-frequencies to each main frequency, you have a reasonable expectation of privacy, not because there's any kind of you know, encrypting or anything like that, simply because the range is limited and not that many people actually use it. So if you're out in a remote location, you've got pretty decent privacy expectations there. It is still on a public frequency, though, so remember that. But what's cool is then you can combine motion detectors with that. So, for instance, I have multiple motion detectors. I have my property broke up into four primary sectors, and those motion detectors set up in areas where I don't want people or animals going. If somebody goes there, the motion detector sends an alert through my handheld radio or through my base station that sounds something like this. Alert Sector 1. Alert Sector 1. And then I can either go check that out or assume that it's, since it's in the back of the property, it's probably a deer and not worth worrying about. But if other sensors get tripped, maybe I need to go check into it. So it's really cool. When I was in Arlington with much smaller property, it told me things like somebody was coming to the front door, somebody was out in front of the garage at night and didn't belong there, or the dog was trying to get out of the backyard. All good things to know. So check out MERS-radio.com today. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. I call them the original sponsor because they were the first ones that ever stopped up and sponsored the show. They've been with us for almost, I guess, three years this January. And I already know from Vic over there that they will be renewing again. They're a great sponsor, and they have everything you possibly look for for your prepping needs, from tactical stuff, 12-volt electrical stuff for your solar and wind projects, long-term storage food, and they build some of the best hardened shelters you'll find anywhere in the world. So check them out today. They are at prepared.pro. That's one of those new fancy domain names without a .com. It's .pro, prepared.pro. Remember, the best way to find any of our sponsors is go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on their banners. They're all there on the right-hand margins. One great thing about uh, Safe Castle, though, is they actually have a discount buyer's club. 
They've been selling this for $29. They just raised it to $49. It's a lifetime membership. And they've been doing that for a long time. And people buy that discount membership every day because it saves you big money on everything SafeCastle sells uh, going forward for the rest of your life. It's a lifetime membership. Well, here's the interesting thing. If you are a member of our support brigade, you get that membership for free. And even though they've increased the price of it, they're still giving it away for free. So that one benefit pays for all but $1 of your first year of member support brigade. So they're a great sponsor. So do consider giving them some business going forward. Uh, next up today, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. We're also available now on the Prepper Podcast Radio Network, available at PrepperPodcast.com. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. In addition to that discount buyers club from SafeCastle, you'll get discounts to about 29 other vendors, including some individual uh, memberships that are worth the cost alone. All, you know, Western Botanicals, another great sponsor, uh, has a preferred membership. It's $50 a year for that membership, and you get 25% off of everything they sell. Well, if you are an MSB member, you get your first year for free, and you get your renewal years if you choose to keep that membership for half price for 25 bucks. So, I mean, there, that's an awesome benefit alone. Basically, what you're doing is supporting the show at 20 cents an episode, and then you get a great return of investment. Like, how about $170 worth of ebooks? Absolutely free on the day that you sign up as an MSB member. Another great benefit. So, lots of great stuff with the MSB. Uh, and remember, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service. If you'd like to join and you'd like a special national service discount, email me details of your service. Just a couple sentences. Don't go into a bio or a CV or a resume or anything like that. Don't photocopy your ID card or anything like that. Just tell me what you did, where you were at, and I will spend, send you a special discount code for recognition of your service, which is a discount off every membership frequency and it applies to renewals. It's the only people that I do that for. Uh, with that, I've got everything wrapped up with the housekeeping today. Let's go ahead and take your first call. Hey, Jack. It's John from West Virginia. Earlier today, I was underneath my welding hood. Welding, like I do, 9% of the time when I'm at work. Underneath my welding hood, that does have a zombie squad sticker on it. And I was listening to your Halloween show and heard the segment that had me in it. And uh, it tickled me to death, man. I, I was having a pretty bad day, and I heard that, and it just... Kind of brightened my day. Just calm to thinking. Uh, what kind of upset you killed me that quick without getting a shot off? I mean, I could have, you know, at least got a couple rounds off. But next year, it'll all be different. Thanks a lot, man. I love the show. Later, bro. Well, hey, John. Um, you know, I'll tell you the reason that I killed you off in the zombie show. There's two reasons. Number one, I wanted a caller who, as soon as they said who it was and where they were from, everybody would go, I know him, and have like an attachment to you. I think you're probably our most beloved listener that calls in. I think that there are probably at least 80% of the regular audience, if you would have, if you just walk up to them on the street and said, hi, this is John, they'd go, from West Virginia, they'd know you. So when you're going to kill off a character in any type of a, a you know theatrical thing, you want the audience that you're playing to to have an attachment to them. Well, I guess you and probably Carson from Canada are the two that people would zone in on and know. And it just so happened when I was screening the calls, you had made a regular call um, about dentistry, which I'll, I'll do like in the next listener call show for you. And I thought, okay, this is great. And I also knew, this is part two of why I used you, I was going to kill Alex Jones off. And I know there's people be like, you're an Alex Jones hater. Well, if I killed off somebody I loved, then... You know, I can kill off anybody I want in the show, and it just is what it is. But I just thought that was cool. I absolutely know 
flat out, if a zombie rings your doorbell, John, you're not going to just go open the door. You'd probably get more than a few shots off, and you'd probably come out on the other side alive. But I just thought I'd open this show with a little bit of entertainment value, I guess, and a little bit of fun. And, John, I want to say this to you flat out, brother. Thank you for all your great calls. You make some of the best calls that ever come in, and I know the audience loves you. And we in, in theatrics, we always try to kill the character off that's, that's most beloved. So that's why that was done. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. It's uh, Oleg from Ontario. I have a question on uh, composting. Now, uh, let's say you have a batch of compost that's almost completely uh, fermented and uh, decomposed. Uh, would there be any issue by uh, uh, mixing old compost with uh, with uh, fresh uh, fresh scraps? Uh, are there any uh, are there any um, uh, health dangers? Anyhow, I uh, just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Great show. Thank you. Bye. The answer is it's not dangerous, but it's not good for the system, and it's not going to give you as good and uniform as a result. Think about it this way. You've, you've got a cake in the oven that you're baking, and you've baked that. It's going to be 35 minutes at 400 degrees. I, I don't bake cakes, so I don't know if that's completely ridiculous to say that, but just say 35 minutes at, at 400 degrees. And 20 minutes into it, you dump new batter on there and try to make a bigger cake. Well, at 35 minutes, you're going to have some done and some not done, and some of the done will even be a little bit underdone where the cold... See, it, it kind of throws everything off. So there's different ways to combat this. The best way to do your composting for fast, efficient composting is get large quantities of your greens and browns, your nitrogens and your carbons, and build those into layers and mix that together and turn it frequently. And that's, that's how you compost quickly. And I've seen, uh, for example, I've seen Jeff Lawton able to go through a batch of compost in 18 days. He did one workshop where they took a wall, you know, they're supposed to compost meat and bones and, you know, excrement from, from omnivores and what have you. He put a dead wallaby they found on the road in the compost pile. And in 18 days, not only was the compost done, there was barely anything, the bones were gone from the wallaby. A wallaby, for those that don't know, is like a small kangaroo. So that's the right way to do it. Those of you in the MSB know I have my three-part bin system that's more for this kind of ad hoc as you go thing with your composting. But let me explain to you why that system works and how that system's supposed to work so well. And this is why it's a multi-bin system. Typically, most of us, we have like this pile of table scraps every day we can throw into a composter. And it's not enough to really do a lot. So the way that you really want to get the most out of like a bin system like that is one, you can vermicompost. And to me, that's where vermicomposting makes sense. Two, you just throw it in there. What you need to do then is get yourself a bunch of leaves, and like I was talking about recently, winter time is a, you know fall is time to go out and get the free uh, brown leaves from people, uh, and and just shred some of that up. Or even if you don't shred it up, have a bucket with a lid on it right next to your composter. Every time you throw a couple handfuls of your kitchen waste in there, get a couple handfuls of those leaves and toss them in. And if you have any green matter that you can grab, like maybe some trimmings from your lawn or whatever in the time of year where that's available, a couple handfuls of that. If you keep that mix going, you'll build it up. Now, you're going to have much faster composting on the bottom of that pile in the center than the top. But by the time you get the first bin fill and you, you filled and you dump it into your second bin, you're kind of starting everything over, and that full bin will compost down, compost down very, very quickly for you. So that's why I built that three-bin system. And, of course, you can turn it one more time into your third bin, and once you do that, it's finished, and you can put it off in any kind of pile or containment system you want to, and you keep that system running. That's why I built that three-part system. So that would be one way to do it. 
I'm actually falling out of love with that, and I'll tell you why. When I was in, in Texas, I had a lawnmower and a lawn, and about half of my lawn was really thick clumps of green clover, uh, or Dutch white clover, actually, green clover. It's green, but it's white flowers. And my lawnmower was side eject or bagging, and there was a little lever you could throw. So all I did when I went through the parts that were like almost all clover, I'd stick it to bag, and I would take that day's baggings, and I would go into my compost bin, I'd throw a layer of that down, a layer of leaves down, and keep throwing chicken, uh, kitchen scraps on that, and it was working really good. For those of you that want to take care of your, your kitchen scraps, and don't want to do a bin system like I'm talking about, there are two ways I would do that. One, set up a worm farm. And they will make very, very high-quality compost for you. And a good worm farm will eat more scraps than you can produce. The other option is mulch your garden. Take your kitchen scraps straight to your garden. Pull your mulch back and throw your kitchen scraps straight on the top of the soil surface and throw your mulch down. Do that once or twice a week or three or four times a week, whatever frequency works for you. And what you'll find is those scraps will go to the soil almost like that. Uh, I want you to try experiment for me. Throw a banana peel on top of a compost pile, not really incorporated in there, uh, and go back and look at it in three or four days. You will see a, a, a brown banana peel. Take a banana peel, put it under about four inches of mulch on top of your garden soil, especially anything other than winter when the soil's frozen, and go peel the, so the, 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 the uh, mulch back in three or four days. You'll probably find nothing. Between the organisms eating it, between the natural composting action, natural breakdown action, it will go to the ground much quicker. The other thing that happens, when we compost, believe it or not, we lose a lot. When you see that big giant pile go down to a small pile and it breaks down to its component parts, there's a lot of off-gases. And some of those gases are, you know, like CO2 is one gas. But there's also off-gassing that contains nutrient. When we take and we put it right on top of our soil and we put the, the mulch on top of it, some of that off-gas nutrient goes into the soil. So it's actually more efficient and takes less work. So those are kind of your three options. They're either you kind of save it up and do it in bulk, you do the three-bin system, or you vermicompost, or it's four options. You do it straight into your garden. All of those are better than just keep adding on your pile. Adding to the pile is fine, though. Let me, let me re-clarify this. If you just want to keep adding to a pile, it's fine. When you get to a certain volume, incorporate some fresh brown and green matter, move the whole pile to a second bin or a second tray or a second area, and start over. And, and then take that whole pile and do that pile in bulk. That'll work for you too. But if you, if you keep adding fresh traps, it's not so much a health issue, because all this stuff will break down in the garden. The worms will eat it, what have you. Um, and it's also about composting meat or omnivore uh, manure. We're not going to have a problem there. But it just is, it kind of throws things off. Again, it's like dumping wet batter into a half-done cake. So those are your methods of getting around that. Great question. Uh, by the way, uh, Trevor, who we had on to talk about his business and composting with uh, bicycles and all pedal to pedal, will be back on the air in a few days. And he's actually going to come back on this time and not talk about business at all. He's just going to talk about making compost. And we'll get some ideas from him on that as well. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Dave. I'm a new member of the MSP, a head usher on the forum. Uh, listening to your, your comments and your, your, uh, shows, your podcast about the, uh, gentleman in Africa who was digging the pits and filling them full of manure and, and turning the, uh, desert into a lush paradise. I'm thinking the same thing for a garden. I'm getting more into gardening because of, uh, listening to your podcast. And I'm thinking of areas that I have not had a garden in before. Grab a post hole digger, dig a hole about eight to twelve inches deep, fill it full of compost, 
cover it back up with dirt, and if I do that throughout the whole garden area by the springtime, I'll have a nice lush area to uh, go and plant some food. Anyway, just uh, curious about your thoughts on that. And, boy, I sure wish you would have some kind of thing going on in the Midwest, also where I'm from in this plains. Appreciate your time, Jack. You take care. Bye-bye. You know what? Thanks for making that call because I actually talked to this listener by email a few days earlier on a number of issues, and it was like a side note he threw in there at the bottom. And I emailed him back, and I said, okay, you just gave me a duh moment. Because I have been thinking since I watched that, that DVD, and by the way, it's called The Man Who Stopped the Desert, And the method of farming is xi farming. And it's, it's remarkably simple. You go out and you dig a hole and you fill it with uh, organic matter and manure. Basically, you fill holes full of shit. I mean, it's as blunt as I can make it. And then when it rains, part of that incorporates into the soil and fertilizes the soil. The guy in the DVD, again, the man who stopped the desert, is, uh, is a pretty innovative guy. And he went through a lot of hell in his local community because he did something different. See, everybody did xi farming over there. What a big deal. But they did xi farming in the wet season. <laughs> well, if we do that, then it's already started to rain and what have you. So what he started doing is he would go out in the middle to the end of the dry season after the harvest and xi farm. And I mean, like they burnt down his hut over this because he was going away from social norms. But what he figured out is if I get it in place prior to the rains, And when the rains come, the ground's already opened up. The water will go in the ground instead of over the ground. And he's basically revolutionized farming in sub-Saharan Africa in the Sahel region. So since I've watched that, I've become you know fascinated by the technique and thought, well, what can we do over here? Well, there's your answer. I'll set up post hole diggers, dig some holes, drop some compost in them. Do that to a whole area. And what I love about that idea is it can be replicated in the way that they're doing it over in Africa. You can go out and do four or five a day, uh, you know, take a couple buckets of, pop, of uh, compost out there and just spread your, t your topsoil and subsoil out, kind of level it out in the area and just keep working your way through to you're done. By doing it in the winter, we're not doing what they're doing over there, right? Because we're going in, that's our wet, our winter is a wet season in the U.S., even if you get more rain in the summer. And here's why. You get less evaporation. But I believe it would be, one, easier to dig unless you're in a place where the ground freezes. And two, we get a heck of a lot more rain than the Sahel region of, uh, of Africa, which you get as a sub-Saharan region. So I, I think it would work rather well. I'm quite intrigued by the idea. I've got a set of post-hole diggers, and I'm beginning to think that maybe this is something I need to do, especially with unlimited compost. On my unlimited compost, we have a question on that. It's amazing how this stuff uh, melds together. i got something else for you for first. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. It's uh, Gordon, main man from the forum. Uh, I was just wondering if you could touch upon the video that you supported on uh, Facebook that was telling us to grow up and to be thankful to Monsanto and BP. I just uh, I really don't understand. I, I love... Your show, I love most, I agree with most everything you say, not everything, but, and obviously not this one. If you could just touch on it, I mean, I left a comment on Facebook explaining my views on it, and I'm just, would really, really like to hear why you support what this guy says. Because uh, it doesn't, it doesn't jive with everything else that you say, so, uh, just like to hear your thoughts on it. Thank you, have a good day. 
Uh, it's a fair question, and before I give my full answer, I'm actually going to play the audio from the video for you. There's a little bit of a graph in this video that you won't have, so that's a visual element that won't be there. I'll put a link in the show notes of the video. Here's what I want to say. When I'm working throughout the day, I do about a thousand things at the same time. And as I posted that video and hit submit on Facebook, one of the things that I realized that I should have, in my comment area with it, said, except for the comment about Monsanto. All right, that's that, that that was actually a clarifier. But the reality is with this video, I don't happen to agree with all of the maybe corporate love component of it, and I definitely of the corporations I would say we should be grateful to wouldn't put Monsanto in there with a clarifier. I'm going to hold on this. A lot of my concerns with big business has more to do with government regulation and interference than what the corporation themselves would do if they had to compete in the open market. So I'll clarify all that. Before that, though, let's go ahead and actually listen to this video because it is a fair question, and I'll come back and I'll give you my thoughts on it. Again, when I posted it on Facebook, I really should have put, except for the comment on Monsanto, but actually listen closely when you hear the word Monsanto and who he's saying that we should actually thank, I'm not necessarily sure it's the corporation itself. You go ahead and listen and make a judgment for yourself, and I'll come back and expand on this. Well, hi, everybody. I'm Bill Whittle, and this is Afterburner. Well, there are protesters in several major American cities using their iPads at Starbucks to make Facebook and Twitter updates on the evils of corporations, and you don't know whether to laugh or cry, honestly. What we're seeing here, I think, are the self-esteem movement's chickens coming home to roost. These kids are upset because the $100,000 of debt they took on in order to get their degree in bitterness studies isn't paying off with a six-figure job and a car and full benefits at an organic farm collective. I feel genuinely sorry for these people. I really do. These are people that are born under the asymptote, and I'll get to that in just a second. You know, if you look deeply into human history, you'll see that every civilization collapses the same way. They're not overrun by barbarians. That happens later. Now, they fail because of their success. Prosperity makes them lazy and breeds a sense of entitlement. They're trapped under the asymptote. Let me show you what I mean. Here's an exponential curve. Now, this is what life looks like for a growing and healthy civilization. You work hard and the quality of your life improves. Every day, things not only get better, they get better faster. But then something happens. The prosperity curve becomes asymptotic. Things still get better, but by smaller and smaller and smaller amounts as time goes on. These people don't know what they're protesting, but I do. They're protesting the fact that they've never been hungry, never been cold, never been without TV and air conditioning in a car. They've always had a video game console and a laptop and a smartphone, and they never, ever had to do any long, hard, real work for any of it. They were born into a level of prosperity so pervasive that the very idea of a difference in prosperity became vulgar and disgusting to them. These kids couldn't even become relatively more or less prosperous on the soccer field because having winners means having losers. And these precious snowflakes have been told how wonderful and unique they are their entire lives. And everyone has always come in first place. Only now, they're out in the real world. And the real world keep score. You know, I could cure this asymptotic disease. I could stop the rise and fall of civilizations. I really believe I could. Because at its core, this isn't about corporations or the economy or what they paid for their bad education. What it's really about is ingratitude. Ingratitude and entitlement and an utter lack of perspective. So, I'd provide some perspective. And I'm afraid I'd have to do it by force. 
You see, to cure this sickness, I would take from every single American between the ages of 10 and 60, say, 1% of their life every year. They're 365 days in a year, so 1% of that is 3.6 days, so we'll just round it down, we'll say three and a half days. And during those three and a half days, I would force everyone to live out in the woods in a cabin. I wouldn't make anyone chop wood. If you want to shiver through three nights, that's your business. I'd make people carry their own water up from the river. Hey, if you don't want to go to the trouble to boil it, be my guest. Recovering from amoebic dysentery will be part of your education. I'd make everybody grow and harvest their own food or dig up roots or collect berries or not. You can sit and complain about it and not eat for three and a half days if you'd prefer. And like most modern Americans, I have a soft spot for little furry animals. But I would make people trap and kill and skin them in order to stay alive. That goes for chickens and fish as well. You see, reality can be ugly and bloody and horrible. And that's something that those protesters have been protected from their entire lives, but not anymore. Playtime is over now. Now, I think that after three and a half days, days spent working hard, gathering food, chopping wood, and carrying water, night times spent with no iPad, no smartphone, no Wi-Fi, no DVDs or Xboxes. I think that would be just enough to make people like this appreciate the fact that there are people out there who will do these things for you. I think three and a half days out there every year for 50 years would make you very grateful that there are groups of people willing to pump and purify your water, provide endless and affordable electrical power so you can be 72 degrees all the time, that there are people who will kill, clean, cook, package, and deliver food so that you don't have to see the blood or the dirt, all of those things. And that these groups of people who provide these services are called corporations, who feed their own selves and their own families by doing these ugly, difficult, unpleasant things for you and charging more than it costs. There are people out there doing that right now, not for three and a half days. They do it every day. They're called farmers, and they work for corporations called Kraft and Green Giant and Monsanto. You should be grateful, and you should thank them. And there are people out in the Gulf of Mexico and the North Sea wrestling with steel beams the size of automobile transmissions in 60-mile-an-hour winds to bring up the oil to charge your iPad and run your AC and your Xbox and your Prius. They work for companies called Exxon and Shell and BP, and you should be grateful and you should thank them. Now, three and a half days is all I'd need. What those protesters need is to grow up. Okay, the first thing I'd like to say in response to the caller after you've now heard that is when he's, the first thing he said is uh, telling us we should grow up. Unless you're the Occupy Wall Streeter, he's not telling you you should grow up. Unless you are the precious little snowflake who never played sports with a score until you were like in high school. And that you think you're entitled to things. And I don't think this caller is that person. So first of all, don't take his grow up personal unless it actually applies to you. Now, on the corporations, let me clarify some things here. When they're saying things like you should be grateful to BP and Exxon, if you drive a car with gasoline in it, you should. All right, Does that mean you love everything that they do? No. But if we shut down BP and Exxon tomorrow, I guarantee you most of you will be crying in your beer until it runs out because you can't get to the store to get any more and the truck can't get any to you. And one of the biggest things that we have a concern about in the world today is running out of oil. These companies are going out there and getting the oil. Does that mean I like everything they do? Hell no, and you people know that. Does, now, my problem with all of these corporations Isn't that they're big and successful? More on that in a bit. Amazing how these calls jive together. What do you hear a call that comes in almost at the end of today's show and how that'll tie back to this? But I'll let that go for now. My problem with these mega corporations is that they are able to purchase influence 
in Washington and use regulations to get away with practices that they would otherwise not be able to get away with. In other words, do I really hate Monsanto because of Roundup? Yeah, a little bit. Do I really hate Monsanto due to GMOs? A little bit. What I hate more is that they're able to use regulation to suppress informing people that they're eating GMOs. All right. If we had a system where anybody could go out and label their product GMO-free without interference, if we had a system where a dairy farmer could label his milk free of RGBH without having Monsanto interference saying, you could damage our brand with that, I would be okay with it. See, it's the fact that Monsanto is able to do things like patent life forms and say our seeds are patented and you can't replicate them. It is the ability to hide what they're doing from the general public that makes me hate them. If they had to be completely open about it and they weren't able to suppress their competitors through the use of regulation so the small business was able to actually come up and compete with them more successfully, I wouldn't actually have a problem with anything they do. You know why? Because I believe if the general public knew what companies like this were doing, then they would say, we're not buying your crap. We're going to buy from your competitors. But that right now, there's no way to know when you're looking at a bag of corn chips, whether it's GMO or not, other than assume that it is. Now, on the you should be grateful, think of who this man is and think of who he's talking to. Right? He's talking to these kids that are in the street, as he puts it, protesting corporations while tweeting and Facebooking on an iPhone and an Android phone. Right? And you don't know whether to laugh or cry for that. Right? So those kids are probably eating Doritos and Taco Bell and all that other crap. And if you want that crap in your life in its current form and you like it that way, then guess what? Guess who provides it to you? A lot of farmers using a lot of Monsanto seed and product. So if you're taking part in that component and you want that component to continue and take away Taco Bell from some of these precious little snowflakes, and I guarantee you they're going to be upset. My other thing is, when I heard him say we should be thankful to them, I actually heard that to be the farmer on the other end of the chain. That's how I heard it. Now, again, I didn't like, if I made this same video, it wouldn't have come out the same way, I wouldn't have said everything the same way, and I certainly would not have chosen Monsanto as one of the corporations that I'd mentioned. But this whole crap where all the corporations are evil and all the small businesses are good is complete crap. Understand, Steve Jobs started out in a garage. Think about that. Right, and selling some kind of cable box to kids in in his his his, uh, his there was a a box. You know what? Steve Jobs started out with this box that let you make long distance phone calls without paying the phone company for him. Right, and he was selling those to his friends and schoolmates at college with his co-founder. I don't remember the guy's name now. That was the first thing they did together. Now think about that. Now that grew into Apple and everything that Apple represents. Hating corporations does nothing. This corporate greed uh, concept is 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 insane. If these guys want to make a difference, they need to take their ass to the Federal Reserve branch locations and to Washington D.C. and get the corporations out of government and the government out of the corporations. A se- you know, we have a separation of church and state. What we actually need to add is a separation of corporate apparatus and government. So that we don't have Monsanto executives doing uh, the uh, rotating door between Department of Agriculture and back to Monsanto. Corporations aren't the problem. Government's not the problem. The fascist nature of the two working in conjunction with each other and suppressing competition and innovation, that's the problem. 
So if these guys want to make a difference, they need to go to Washington. Now, I'm not going to talk about this Occupy Wall Street nonsense much anymore. I've gone on record with my opinion. I believe these people are largely useless idiots. But I do want to explain something. They keep saying they're the 99%. First of all, they are not the 99%. They absolutely are not. And I guarantee you, you can't find 99% of Americans that think what's going on out there is a good flipping idea. Since shutting down Wall Street would probably destroy the retirement of the majority of Americans. And these precious little snowflakes, as the guy calls them, don't really think about that. But let's talk about the 1%. But the 1% not of the rich, wealthy. The 1% of Occupy Wall Street. I believe there's about 1% of the people out there involved with this that if you walked up to them and said, what do you want, what's going on, what, they would be able to articulate that message very well. They're actually concerned citizens and they want something done right. But when I hear people in the movement trying to compare themselves to Martin Luther King, I think it's full of crap. I'll tell you why. If I went up to a group of people marching with Martin Luther King and said, what do you want, they would say, we want equality for everybody regardless of race. And I would either agree or disagree. Of course, I would agree. But you would have to at least say, these people know what they want, and they're asking for something. Go up to an occupier and go, what do you want? And you'll hear everything from, man, I'm here to protest global warming, to, you know, a Ron Paul supporter who I'll agree with. To, that's corporate greed, and I owe too much money because of my degree. No one forced you to take that loan. You know what, when you borrow money, guess what you get to do? You get to pay it back. Right, So being out there, and this is the real thing, though. I don't want to even go down into these intricacies where everybody can debate and argue and, you know, this is right or this is wrong. When you have a mass of people acting collectively in protest in the streets and there's not a single unifying desire, in other words, what would make these people happy and go home and feel like they had mission accomplished, then you have a mob. And eventually that mob, that horde, will begin to turn on each other. And I'm telling you that the people in power know this, they want this, and this thing is going to become nationwide rioting like we saw in London. I don't care if half the people out there are good, intelligent people that know what they're doing. I don't care if 99% of them are what I'm calling the 1% of them. I don't care. I'm telling you, without a single objective in mind, they are subject to manipulation And the people that are in power are going to use them like pawns on a chessboard. And nothing good will come from this. If you want to get together and demonstrate and protest, you better know what you want. And what I have not been able to hear, other than some socialist drivel off their website, using the word they about a million times without saying who they actually are, is a clearly articulated statement, we want this. Right? If you ask even in a tea party, I think has been corrupted and co-opted and manipulated and turned into pawns. But I do think at least that if I went to a tea party event and said to the average person, what do you want is a group less spending and less taxes. I think that everybody there would say that is something they want. Now, what ruined that? I went to one of the very first tea parties, folks. I really did. I thought there was something to it. And I got lectured on the sin of sodomy. I got lectured on the sin of abortion, both by two different preachers that were brought there. Now, I thought I was there to protest overspending with the stimulus bill and overtaxing. Right? I thought that's what it was about. But it became about every pet political issue of the right. And that ruins focus. And it became a tool to get Republicans reelected and one that worked very well. The people in charge are either going to use this Occupy Wall Street thing 
to create riots in the streets and create an excuse to crack down for more government enforcement and regulation, which is the very problem in of itself, or they're going to turn it into an apparatus to try to get Democrats reelected in the coming election. You can tell me anything you want to about somebody you talk to out there or what they know. I'm telling you what the people in control, the puppet masters pulling the strings, are actually doing. And I will tell you that there is an old statement that's absolutely true. No man is more enslaved than one who falsely believes himself to be free. No puppet is under more control than the one that doesn't know someone's got their hand up their ass. That's what this thing is. And it's going to blow up. And I'm telling you, there's going to be riots. If they have to send people in there to provoke riots, they will. That's where this is going. I'm sorry it's not what some of you think it is. I'm sorry that it's not going to lead to what some of you hope it will. I'm sorry. I wish it would. I'm not giving you the corporate speak. I'm not giving you the media response. I'm not giving you the customized response of either the left or the right media. I'm telling you the truth. And you can choose to not believe it, and you do not have to agree with me. All I'm telling you is if you're near where one of these things are, you better keep on high alert because it is going to erupt sooner or later. And if it doesn't, the only way out of this is it fizzles out. These guys get bored and cold and go home, and it will be resurrected in the summer, and then it will blow up. It's going to happen. You've been warned. And I am done with this subject because other than being prepared for civil unrest around it, it doesn't really pertain that much to what we do here. That's why I took so much time on this response so that we could put it to bed. And if you want to support it, fine. And if you don't, fine. Make your own decisions. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Brian in Ohio. I was just calling. I was, you know, you've mentioned a couple times on your show that you get your compost from a, a local municipality uh, composting facility. Uh, I found that I have one close by where I live, but I was concerned uh, about the the killer compost. I read a couple articles concerning that where there's uh, pesticides or herbicides potentially mixed into the compost that you get, and uh, I was concerned about getting some for my garden beds this fall, and uh, but I don't want to end up ruining my garden beds for however many years afterwards. I was wondering what your thoughts were, if that's a valid concern or if there's any way to... Uh, to uh, prevent that or test the compost before actually putting it on my bed. Uh, thanks for your thoughts, and I uh, appreciate all the good work you're doing. Bye. It's a very good question, and here's what I did, and it's not 100% guaranteed because I don't do this every time I go get more. But what I did is when I first found out about the facility, I went down there several different times and got a bucket, just a five-gallon bucket, and went to the self-load pile and filled up a bucket. I planted beans in there. And the beans grew in the bucket just fine. And once I did that with two or three different samplings, I determined that I don't believe that there's any real risk of major contamination of uh, biocide in there, specifically any type of herbicide. And here's why. The most susceptible uh, organisms that we have out there to any type of these biocides, herbicides, are legumes. If legumes will grow well in something, it's probably safe. Can I say there's zero risk? No, but I can tell you that there's very, very low probability risk. I think it helps a great deal that I'm in a really a kind of a small town, rural county type area. I know that when I got some compost from a facility in, in Garland, Texas, there were some residues in there, and it took a while to recover from them, and I did, they did recover from them. Uh, part of why this is such a case is beans are a very fast-growing plant, 
What these herbicides do, and I'm just now learning this, is they actually cause plants to grow themselves to death. They cause the plant to grow so rapidly that it can't keep up with itself and it collapses underneath itself and it dies. And apparently legumes are most susceptible to this. Now, how did I learn this little technique for doing this? Well, I learned it from Marjorie's DVD, Backyard Food Production, uh, where she was talking more about not compost, but when you get hay. So you can get these hay and, and straw and stuff like that for mulch. And sometimes that can have residues on it. So what she does when she gets hay, a sampling of that, before she'll use it on her garden, is she puts a whole big five-gallon bucket full of it, and then she fills that with water. She plants some beans and gets them growing, and then waters the beans with the water from that soaked straw. And if it causes damage or you know starts to, to affect their growth negatively, then that's, that's, that batch is kind of a no-go. So that's kind of my approach is, can I grow beans in it? And if I can grow beans in it, I'm relatively assured that it's safe. I also know for a fact the diversity of this compost. So when I'm there loading, for instance, I'll see 20 or 30 trucks, and most of them are just homeowners with a pickup full of yard trip trimmings and stuff like that being thrown in there. I am actually more concerned right now about getting compost from agricultural sources than I am from getting compost from residential sources, and here's why. If you spray Roundup on anything in a residential yard, you pretty much kill it. And if it's not killing it anymore, not as much as, you know, there can, there's some grass can handle some level of residue of Roundup, and that's one of your problems. If you get compost from a facility and it immediately starts to like growing nut sedge grass and won't grow anything else, You've got killer compost. I mean, it's one of the telltale things. But, you know, when people are sending you yard waste and stuff like that, you don't spray Roundup on your Bermuda grass or you kill it. So I think there's less of the herbicides. Now, there is a concern with insecticides and other, you know, biocides. But the reality is compost cooking process, over time, things diminish, what have you. So I'm not that concerned with using it. In an ideal situation, if I had some pasture land and plenty of greens and browns to work with and could do my own composting at a major level the way that you could in a different environment than I have, would I avoid using it altogether? Probably. But it's, it's the price is right in that it's free. Uh, and it's, so far, it's been very effective. And even when I had a little bit of residue in the stuff that I used from the Garland facility down in Texas, you know, I just kept working with it. I kept planting trap crops. And you guys saw the last year before I left there, uh, I had pepper plants that were six feet tall. Uh, there's no problems with fertility and, and growth in that. So I think that we can overdo this, but I am actually, again, more concerned about agriculturally sourced compost than I am residentially sourced compost because the agriculturally sourced compost is where we're planting Roundup resistant soy. And then we're spraying it with Roundup twice while it grows. And then we're taking the residue of that soy and we're composting it and then we're selling it to people as organic matter. Huh? You know, come on. So that, that's kind of my way, but that's the easy way to test any source. If it's something you can grow in, try to grow legumes in it, in like a little pot. And if it's like a mulch or something, soak it down and use the water to water legumes growing in a pot and see if there's any problems with their development and growth. If they grow out fine, you've probably got a good, safe source. That said, of course, there could be a bad source tomorrow, but again, I try to keep spreading this out and getting multiple batches and all and keep the... Uh, the percentage of, of problem down. All right, let's go ahead and take a, another call. Oh, one more before we do that. Generally speaking, if you want to know the source of a city, city composting facility, they will provide to you where they get everything, what's in it, and a chemical breakdown. Usually on the city's website, or you can talk to the facility manager and get something like that so you know exactly what you're dealing with. With that, let's go ahead and take the next call. 
Hey, Jack, this is Rick from Ohio. I'm standing out here in my suburban backyard homestead that I started and looking at my garden and noticing a problem. Well, it's getting to be late October, and I should have my cover crops in now, uh, you know, the hairy vetch and oats and whatnot. Well, the problem is, is I got all these heirloom plants, and they grow like a freight chain. They don't stop. They just keep growing and growing and more and more, which is a wonderful problem. But now I'm running into, do I let them grow and keep canning and keep on harvesting, or should I tear them out and put down my cover crops? Well, if you could get back to me, let me know. Thanks. Oh, and if I could, um, plug my website is simpleprepingnow.com. Thanks. Yeah, you know, the more I hear stuff with cover crop issues, I just listened to um, Jason Akers on cover cropping, and he had a kind of a different problem that I won't go into today, and now I'm hearing this one. I'm thinking about actually eventually writing a little ebook like for five bucks called Cover Cropping Secrets or something like that, because of all the little different things I've figured out about cover cropping where people see a problem and there isn't one. So let's say right now I had a whole bunch, of, like I didn't start late this year, and I had a whole bunch of peppers and tomatoes and stuff still going like crazy in my garden, and I wanted to get a cover crop in, what would I do? Well, what I would do is I would go in and I would pull all my mulch out and pile it up to the side, and I would trim off the bottom of the plant so I can at least get down to the soil level, so I'd give them a little pruning down low, and I would go in and I would just seed the hell out of my cover crop, and then I would put my mulch back, and then I would give it a good watering in, and I'd let the cover crop start coming up underneath all of my tender annuals. And then when the first frost comes and kills them, I just go in and cut them all down, and the cover crop would be coming right up underneath, and it would be just like secession in a forest. Oh, there's your solution. That's it. That's all you have to do. You don't need to turn your soil or rake it down, or, or you know, all you need to do is just go in there manually by hand. And this is why there's some things with cover cropping that's really, really innovative that we can do at a gardener level that would be difficult to do at a farmer level. But basically, you're overseeding is all you're doing here. A lot of places where they're trying to protect turf grass, for instance, and they have like a Bermuda grass uh, that'll die in the winter, they'll go in and they'll overseed an annual ryegrass. And then that'll have winter hardiness and basically will hold the turf. And then when the spring comes and you start cutting it, the Bermuda grass takes back over. It's kind of the same thing. So I just get your cover crop mixture together that you want to do and just underseed your things that are going to winter kill. There's a lot of things you can do with that winter kill thing as well. For instance, let's say you wanted one more crop of buckwheat this year for your bees. You really didn't want to harvest the buckwheat or cut it down or anything. But you let's say you have four weeks at least before your first frost. Well, buckwheat can mature quite a bit and definitely flower within four weeks. No problem. So then we could go in there with vetch. And we could go in there with winter pea, and we could go in there with buckwheat. And we could, we could cover crop those three together. Now, the winter pea and the vetch are going to grow much slower, especially in the warm part of the year. If it's really warm out, they might not even germinate. But up comes the buckwheat, and the buckwheat grows, and it creates this little microclimate cool down there, and that vetch starts to have little wiry pieces and putting down roots, and so do the winter pea. And then the first frost comes, and what happens to the buckwheat? It dies. Guess what takes over? The vetch. And the winter pea. And now we've got that. So there's a lot of cool things we can do with cover cropping. I'm thinking about doing a show on it, maybe putting it into a manual someday, but it's like many of the other books that are in my head but never written. Uh, but maybe next week I'll do a show on cover cropping and uh, innovative ways to use cover cropping in your gardening uh, that are things that maybe are a little bit more difficult to do if you were out on a farm. That said, what I just gave you, Buckwheat let the winter kill it and let 
things take over. And you can do that with a lot. Think about this, right? Okay, so fava and bell beans will often grow in cool climate winters, but if we get a real hard freeze down in the 20s, they will die stone cold. Well, if you live in a place where you know they're going to die stone cold, but something like winter pea, kyasote, and vetch will survive most of the winter, uh, what you can do is you plant those with your favas or your bell beans, and and then you know your your vetch and your favas all fix nitrogen. But when your favas get killed, they drop their nitrogen, and winter does the kill for you. But the ground's still covered with the vetch and the kyasote. So. Just some different ideas. Um, I put out a video today, by the way, of the Hugo Culture Project. Uh, the first one, it was like shot like three months ago. The second one is with the new guy that's doing the editing now. He's taking care of that. And you'll see some of this stuff going on uh, with the Hugo Culture Project. And some of the stuff I'm just figuring out now. So it'll get incorporated as we go through the rest of the year. And we'll keep you informed on that. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Logan again. Um, Logan from Colorado. I just wanted to call in a little you know, cool piece of information. Um, you know, a friend of mine, I'm a close friend, but, you know, a school friend. We're both uh, seniors in high school. I recently found out from him that he has started up his own business. He has uh, a bill, um, server services, so he um, does server work and um, I think maybe technical support in some capacity for uh, companies like Yahoo and uh, Google and stuff like that. He just started up, uh, I think, a few months ago. And he has, you know, like, a, his company, and he's, like, three guys working for him. You know, they're all young guys, high school, college age, just, you know, really cool stuff like that, you know. People that are starting up businesses when, uh, you know, they're less than 20. So uh, it's just a cool thing I thought you to know about. Thanks for all you do, and I hope you and everyone else listening has a good day. Told you something would tie back into the Occupy Wall Street one percenter crap lie, not where the ninety nine percent BS that these 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 kids say that they are because they're not the ninety nine percent. Come on, and they don't represent the ninety nine percent. I don't think that this young man that, that Logan's talking about would consider himself part of the one percent of the wealthiest Americans. Here we got a guy start up a small business. Probably no college degree, right out of high school or something like that. I think he said they were high school seniors. Yeah, they always went to college, fine. Uh, but employing three other people. So he's not putting food on his table. He's putting food on the table of four different families. And he's building it from nothing. And I think most of the Occupy Wall Streeters would say, well, he's a small business. He's okay. But yet his clients are mega corporations like Yahoo and Google that are publicly traded. Google who they probably are using their YouTube platform to put out videos of their, I mean, come on, hello? But here's what I want to know, on all seriousness. So this guy, let's say he, he grows up to where he's got 20 people working for him. Is he guilty of corporate greed now? Because now with 20 people, he has a half a million dollar house and a nice boat and a nice car? Or is he still not too big? He grows up to where there's 40 people. And uh, he has a $100 million company with 40 technicians working for him. Is he guilty of corporate greed now? How big does this company have to get before he's guilty of corporate greed? And at the point that he becomes guilty of the corporate greed, how many families is he feeding then? You know, when I worked for Fluke Networks, not my favorite people, honestly, um, but let me put it to you this way. When you work for a company that does $500 million, you're putting a food on the table of a lot of people. And then another thing. Without like the Yahoo's and the Googles to provide these tech support contracts to, where would this guy right now be able to build this business? You just have to think about this stuff. So I do think it's cool that there's young people out there starting businesses up, whether it's a very eco-friendly business like Trevor did with uh, with Pedal to Pedal, or if it's a highly technical business like this, or whether it's the next Steve Jobs. 
Uh, with, a, with a college uh, schoolmate coming up with the greatest new innovation of all time. I think all of this stuff is great. And again, I think that if we want to understand the problem, we need to look at the intermesh, interwoven mesh between government and the corporations, and we need to look at the elite banking layer. And those are two places that the occupiers don't seem to be very interested in. Now, I know I'm going to get your hateful email. I'm where we're trying to end the Fed. And, and, yeah, and what percentage of you are the, of that mob? You know, when, when I've seen people go to these things and have people stand up and speak at them, I'll see ten speakers speak on ten different things, and, and, and none of them seem to have anything to do with each other. What's the goal? What's the agenda? Well, my goal and my agenda for America is preparedness. And preparedness includes the ability to develop self-sufficiency from not just a food standpoint, but an income standpoint. And that means we need young entrepreneurs like this young guy that Logan's talking about. And that we need, we need big business as well. There's room for everybody out there in the landscape. Problem's government. So if you guys in the Occupy movement want to do something, take your ass to the Capitol building and take your ass to the headquarters of the Federal Reserve and then maybe you'll start to make a point. And by the way, get a few unified ideas going on out there so at least you know what you're all angry about. And if you're angry about your student loans, you're the one that borrowed the money. That's all I can say. Now, do I think that you're a victim? On some levels, yes. I think student loans are one of the most predatory things known to man. I'd like to see something done about it. So if all of you were out there saying student loans need something done, and that was the goal, maybe you could get something done. I don't know. But what's the alternative? A $1 trillion default? Please understand, that's the alternative. When you're asking for something, please know the consequences of getting what you want. That's my final thought on the Occupy movement, unless something comes out of it that we need to talk to about defending yourself from civil unrest. And I am done. Let's go on to the next caller. Hey, Jack, this is Chris for the uh, Voluntarist Veteran on Facebook. Hey, uh, I got a quick question. I'm trying to clear somewhere between uh, one to three acres of pine. Pine doesn't really buy much for me unless I have a wood boiler. I want to get that stuff out of there and then use the land to plant my fruit forest and, uh, and, and nut trees behind that. I guess my question is I'm chainsawing all these things down by hand, but uh, I must have the stumps. Uh, so two options are I can rent some heavy equipment, I guess, and, uh, and have those things, you know, shoved out. Or uh, I can run a stump grinder and grind them all the way down and maybe plant my trees and, and shrubs and such just, uh, just to the right or left of those guys. Uh, unless I'm missing something, um, that seems to be my two options. I was wondering what your thoughts might be or if I'm missing something. Um, really appreciate your feedback. Thanks for the show. Take care. Bye. Well, number one, I'd probably hire a guy to come in with a machine and push stuff over and, and smash it down and turn it into hugel culture beds, uh, putting it on a swell on contour line, and uh, uh, I would probably do that with it. And I wouldn't worry about the supposed allopathic properties of pine because it's mostly in the needles, and once the wood begins to break down, there's no worries with that. So that's probably what I would do. Since you're doing it manually, you might want to look at this a little bit different. Um, every single one of those trees that you cut down to the ground, that's a great big stump down in there. And if we cut it down, especially if you'll cut it down like in the, if you, you know, winter's a great time to do the work, but spring you're going to get less coppicing off of those and, and regrowth. Um, but every one of those you cut, eventually you're, you're going to kill off the regrowth and it's going to die and that stump's going to sit in the ground and it's going to rot. And what do you have? You have all these stumps all over this, this one to three acre piece of land and uh, they're rotting in the ground. And then what happens? Well, they begin to rot even further, and basically you have these little hugel culture piles all over the place. 
That's how nature works. When a tree falls over, the stump becomes a natural culture bed. Where do you think the idea came from? Do you think Sepp Holzer just dreamed it one night? Or do you think that people over time observed rotting tree stumps and saw things grow directly out of them? So you may want to just leave them there. And you may just want to plant around them. And you may not want to cut them all down. Here's one of the problems you're going to have with the way that you're doing things. You're getting rid of all your shade. Let's think about the way a forest naturally progresses. Your first things are your cedars and your pines and things like that. They're your pioneer species. And then they create this shaded environment that reduces evaporation. And in between them, your oaks and your hickories and things like that come up. So you may want to leave some of your pines. And you may only want to take them out as your second secession begins to take over. So clear-cutting may be a really bad idea here. So those are just some of my thoughts on it. I don't know that you're really missing anything. And it's up to your land and it's up to you what you do. But I probably wouldn't remove 100% of them. And I would probably mark the ones I want to keep. And I'd probably hire a guy for $500 to 1000 bucks to come in with a bulldozer and do in half a day what it'll take you three years to do. But, you know, that's your choice. And maybe you don't need to do that at all anyway. Maybe you need to very slowly progress this. You're in a similar situation to me in some ways. i got five acres, and I want to basically create like a, a half-acre to an acre island or maybe two half-acre islands in my lower valley where I'll get some solar exposure and do my kind of perennial food forest thing down there surrounded by native woodlands. And I'm very hesitant to cut some of the trees. So if you want new stuff, old stuff has to go away. But if you are cutting them down, I would probably just leave the stumps. I wouldn't grind them. I wouldn't do anything to them. I would just leave them there. They're not going to completely regrow. And controlling the regrowth while growing other things around them shouldn't be that much of a problem. Within one season, most of them should be dead and begin the decaying process. And piling organic matter up on top of them, especially once they stop trying to coppice, uh, will accelerate that for you. Let's take one more call. We'll wrap up for the day. Yeah, Jack, this is uh, John from northern New York. I'm calling, um, what do you think of the idea of taking some of your funds from your 401-457 plan and putting it into buy bonds, the interest bonds, savings bonds that the government offers? Um, I would just like to know what you think of that um, as an option. And I believe you're, uh, you're limited to uh, 5000 on the Treasury Direct, and then another 5000 in actual bonds that you can invest in I-bonds. Uh, thanks for all you do, and I really enjoy your show, Jack. Thank you. Bye. On the surface, I hate it. I just hate it. And here's why. Because uh, you can't do it without taking the money out. When he first asked the question, I said, okay, even though I'm not a big, huge fan of savings bonds, they are... They can be a short-term investment because you only have to hold them for a month before you can start uh, turning them in. And if you don't hold them to, a, a, I think it's five years, uh, if you do give up anything, all you give is the last three months of interest up. So you don't lose any of your principal at all uh, after you have 12 months for redemption. So you can really look at them as a short-term investment vehicle, and they do pay a good interest rate compared to something like a bank account right now. So as long as it's 12-month or longer money, uh, I don't hate them. I'm not a big fan of them, but I don't hate them. But when you come to taking money from a 401k or a 413b or something like that, about the only way that you can get to invest in something that's not included in the plan, right, that's not on your list, is if you've left a job or something like that or some other circumstance comes up that allows you to, well, you can roll that money to an IRA. And once you get it into an IRA, you can do anything you want with anything that's marketable. The problem is that Series I bonds are not marketable securities. And what I mean by marketable is I can't sell it to you. When I buy it, I buy it from the government. I am the receiver of the bond, and I have to hold the bond, and only I can cash it in. 
So it's not a marketable security the way uh, a treasury bill or a tips uh, bond or something like that is. Uh, so I, it's, it can't be traded on the open market, so to speak. Which, from everything I can see, and from I tried to do some research for you, uh, and found an article by a guy named Dr. Don, Don Taylor, Ph.D. in CFA. CFA is Chartered Financial Analyst. Um, is He can't figure out how to do it either. There's no way you can buy a Series I bond inside an RA, IRA. So if somebody knows how to do that, then let me know. So since you can't buy it in a retirement account... Um, I don't know that it makes sense because now that means you have to pay interest and penalties to get your own money out to make that investment. I would be far more likely. Let's say you said, well, and you mentioned there's a $5,000 limit. So let's say you're making contributions of even you know moderate contributions, $2,500 a year to your 401k or 403b or 529a or whatever that whatever the hell it is, right? 529a. That's not that's a tax-free organization. Forget I said that. Anyway, you're making your contributions. I would say cut your contributions and start buying $2,500 worth of bonds or $5,000 worth of bonds because that is the limit on Series I bonds. You can only buy $5,000 a year. And use the money instead of putting it in your 401k. Use new contributions to make the purchases with. And I do think they play a role. Now, remember, I'm very concerned about bonds right now. I would not recommend you buy bonds in any state. And if you do buy a municipal bond, you need to insure that bond uh, by purchasing, a, you know, a, an option against it in case it defaults, right? You need to insure yourself the way big investors do, or you need to buy marketable municipal bonds in the most stable states currently in the union, and you need to buy them relatively short term. I would not go long on any municipal bonds right now, but federal bonds are a bit different. Everybody talks about the U.S. defaulting and blowing its debt and all, and rebasing the currency. They probably will. The last thing they won't pay is a savings bond. That will be the last thing they don't pay on. Uh, they almost can't afford not to. Do you know how many old ladies are holding those? Do you know how quick DC would burn? Uh, they might have to print the money to do it. They might have to devalue the currency to do it, but they're going to do it whether you're holding a bond or not. So a Series I bond I'm okay with. You keep an eye on things. They work this way. You get an interest rate. Sometimes it's zero. Sometimes it's a quarter percent. Sometimes it's a point. Plus an inflationary factor. So they pay better than any bank account you'll ever have. Again, limitations, uh, you can only buy them as an individual. And Series I, we call it interest, but it can also be individual. That's really what they're made for. So you buy it for yourself. It's not a marketable or tradable security. So that means you hold it, you can cash it in, subject to its limitations, and that is all. And you can only buy $5,000 worth of them a year. Let's say you want to put $10,000 into them in a year and you are a family with a husband and a wife. Well, both of you can buy $5,000 worth. So it's per taxpayer uh, $5,000 limit annually. So there you go on that. That wraps things up today. I hope the stuff on Occupy Wall Street didn't bend too many of your noses the wrong way. I know some of you really believe in that movement. If you do, fine. I'm not putting you down. And I know there's great people involved in that. This is what I'm going to end with, though. And it really is, like I said, the, my kind of last word on it today. And... You know, the only thing I'll even be, ever be saying about it again, whenever you get enough people in the street together, there's a propensity and a potential for that to turn into civil unrest. And if it's going on near you, pay attention to it. That's all I'm saying. Whether you agree with them or not, it may be your windows that get smashed down or your house that gets burned. And whosever fault it is won't really matter when your house is on fire. So be prepared to deal with the offshoots, regardless of whether you support or oppose what those guys are out there actually trying to do. And let me just say, I do think there's some good people in that movement. 
And I really wish it was more than it is. I really do. I wish it was actually a popular revolution of the American people with a, you know, one or two clearly defined objectives. And I wish it was something I could get behind. It just isn't. And I'm sorry to those of you that feel bad about that. But we don't have to agree on everything. What we do have to agree on is we have to take care of ourselves and our family and our communities. So we need to stay solid on that. How you choose to express your goals is up to you. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution